This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to R.O. Kwan about her fantastic debut novel, The Incendiaries. R.O. Kwan is a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vice, BuzzFeed, The San Francisco Chronicle, Playboy, Noon, Electric Literature and elsewhere. She has received awards from Yadu, McDowell, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Sewanee Writers Conference, OMI International, the Steinbeck Centre and the Norman Mailer Writers Colony. Born in South Korea, Kwan has lived most of her life in the United States. And today we're going to be talking about her debut novel, which is The Incendiaries. Reese, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. How would you describe The Incendiaries? Uh, well, what I usually say about it is that it's about a woman who gets involved with a radical group of Christians. Um, it turns out to be a cult with enigmatic ties to North Korea. Um, and they end up bombing five buildings in the name of faith. And I understand it took many years to write. It did. Yes, it took, it took me 10 years. Um, a number that's still, I just find it nearly unbelievable. <laughs> Well, when you say it took 10 years back to, you know, a, a massive 800-page tome, but this book is just clocks in at just over 200 pages, which I think is about the perfect length. And it's also, the, the prose is like incredibly pared down, short chapters with, you know, very sort of like pared down text. So over those years, how did it get to this, this finished book? Well, um, it went through so many different versions of itself. At one point, it was a 400-page monster of a book. There was a whole section told from one of the characters' um, father's points of view set in 1970s South Korea that I cut out um, after I'd written about 100 pages of that. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just sort of, it's like gone through, I feel as though it's gone through Alice in Wonderland stages where it's gotten big, it's gotten small, it's gotten big, it's gotten small, and then it ended up in the version that, that we have now. So there are three main perspectives in the story, three main characters, and the book's told from those three perspectives. Will, the first one, is a sort of classic first-person narration, and in fact he's a, you know, we could say he's an unreliable narrator in, in some ways as well. The other two, Phoebe and John Leal, are they're told from a slightly different perspective. Tell me about that choice? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, it's been so interesting having this book out in the world and that people have different points of view, which are, of course, not invalid. I mean, I think I've been realizing um, more and more that a book is made in part by a reader. You know, like every book is remade again, I think, um, every time it's read by somebody new. And not everyone's had this point of view, but I, when I, I very much, when I was working on this, I very much thought of this as a book that's more or less entirely narrated by Will. Um, yeah, and he's he's sort of trying to imagine his way into, into what happened. Um, and it was really important to me. I know this isn't a question that's addressed in a lot of books, for, but for a variety of reasons, it was important to me that the book have a reason to exist, even in Will's world, even in the fictional world of the novel, I wanted it to have a reason to exist. And so a lot, in a lot of ways, this book comes about because Will's trying to explain to himself what happened, um, to try to understand what happened. And so it, so yeah, so Phoebe's and John Leal sections, he, he's trying as hard as he can to imagine what they would have said for themselves. In some part of it's that he's remembering things that he's heard them say, um, he has Phoebe's notebooks and there's, so there's that. And in other places, he's, he's tr- just trying to fill in the holes. So let's just take a, a closer look at those three characters in turn. So Will, all three characters have, they've lost something and they've all got, I guess, secrets. They're all sort of carrying secrets with them. And these secrets, are, I guess they're all looking for identities, but they're sort of secrets form part of that. So, so Will, he, he's lost his faith in God to begin with, but also he's, he comes from a poor part of California, he comes from a poor background. And he goes to like, you know, obviously a, quite a um, highbrow East Coast university. So he's trying to hide that background, isn't he? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, he is. Um, and from the start, he tries to not let anyone know what his what his real life was like back home. It's within driving distance from San Francisco, but I imagine I imagine him as being um, in a town in a small town outside of San Francisco called Carmenita. So Phoebe, Phoebe comes from a, a more eventually more well-to-do background. Her, her mother um, left her father in in Korea, has come over to the US. But basically, they've obviously, you know, done okay for themselves. But then she's carrying with her not just grief for her mother who's died in a car crash, but guilt over that crash as well. She is. um, And that's and she's hiding that, too, from a lot of people. She doesn't she's she doesn't want to talk about it with these people that she's just met. And she certainly doesn't want to talk about having been the one to she doesn't want to talk about the fact that she was the one driving when she when she crashed the car. And then our third character, John Leal, who, well, he's quite mysterious. And again, as you've confirmed that Will is the person that is narrating all of this story, we only get to hear about John Leal through Will's stories about him, or at least what what has been heard about him. So Will suspects that a lot of the things that we know about John Leal are true. Mm-hmm. So who is he? So who is John Leal? <laughs> Um, well, so John Leal is someone who at least says that he has spent, um, time as a missionary in, in, in a border town in China that, that had in a border city in China that has, um, that has given him access to being able to help, being able to help North Korean refugees. And he at least says that he has been in a gulag in North Korea, um, and that he is, and, that, and that that's where he had his sort of revelation from God about about what his next steps would be, which would be involved, which would be 
forming this group, <laughs> this Christian group back at Knopshurst. Yeah, and he forms what is, I mean, it's fundamentally a cult. Tell me about research, researching into, into cults. So there was, a, there was a period for several months at a time, I was reading everything I could find about um, sort of, there were different silos. So there were everything I could find in nonfiction about cults, um, but also about radical extremist groups um, and about terrorists. And also about the history of reproductive rights, abortion rights in America. But then after a while, I I just sort of put those books away and I tried to forget everything I had read to the extent I could. Um, because I very much wanted this cult to be John Neal's own cult. I wanted it to be a group sort of arising out of his own obsessions, his own losses. What's been... Interesting is that as I've been going to more readings and meeting more readers and talking to more readers, um, there have been so many people who have said, oh, you must have based this cult on X, or it reminds me so much of cult Y. Um, did, was that the direct inspiration for the cult? And every time I just have to say no. And at this point, there have been maybe 20 different cults that have been proposed to me. And so I hesitate to generalize, but I wonder if there, I, I just wonder if Maybe cults have more in common than they don't um, in terms of how people, in terms of how cult leaders gain followers, in terms of how they appeal to followers and how they and how they attain power. And as I mentioned, the book deals with issues of grief. We've mentioned um, Phoebe's mother dying in the car crash, but also we could say that Will's grief over his loss of faith, couldn't we? Yes, absolutely. Um, that was maybe the first uh, the first spark for the book for me was trying to portray in fiction how devastating it can be to lose an all-encompassing faith the way Will does. And that was very much, in some ways, emotionally, not not, not in terms of like every bio biographical fact, but um, emotionally, those were some of the most directly autobiographical parts of the book. Because I also, like Will, I grew up very religious, so religious, I truly did think I was going to become a missionary or a pastor, um, something along those lines. And then, and then when I was 17, I, I lost my faith. Um, and it was, it was cataclysmic for me. Um, it was, it was so painful. And I think it's a, I think it's a grief that hasn't in any real way ended. And so how did that, how did that come about for you? How did that happen? Um, you know, it's a lot like, it's, it's a lot like the lines I gave to Will in the book um, where he says that it's like what people say about bankruptcy, that it happens gradually and then all at once. There were, there were so many reasons. There wasn't just it wasn't it wasn't one event or one question. It was it felt very much as though there were a lot of questions outside the door and I was pushing against the door to keep them out. And at some point I couldn't keep pushing and then all the questions and doubts and contradictions just came rushing in. And I couldn't. And from then on, I, I couldn't really believe anymore. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to R.O. Kwan. We're talking about her debut novel, The Incendiaries. And I want to talk about the idea of North Korea in the book, because we think possibly John Leal has been in North Korea as a prisoner, although that might not necessarily be true. North Korea is obviously this place where, you know, we don't know that much about it. It's like an un- an unknowable zone. And obviously as well, I guess religion sort of counts as that sort of uh, unknowable god, counts as like an unknowable force as well. It's almost like the two things, the same role in the story. Mm. You know, with North Korea, it was so interesting for me that, well, let's put it this way. I didn't intend to write a book that took place partly in North Korea or took place partly in an imagined North Korea I, I came to that because at the time, at, well, at a certain point, I was reading a lot about North Korea in part because my family, um, I have distant relatives who live or lived, for all I know, in North Korea. Um, and, I think, and I think because of that, I was, I was reading everything I could find about the place. I think just to just know something about, about these distant relatives I'll never get to meet. And then when John Leal started taking on this, this sort of enigmatic North Korean past, it was of the utmost importance to me that I not make any claims about a place that I can't visit, that I've never, that I've never seen. Um, and that so few people get to see, it felt like a very different kind of responsibility than depicting, you know, New York city or Beijing or other places where anyone can go or, you know, most people can go. Um, a lot of people can go. And so I wanted to portray that unknowing itself. I wanted to portray that that desire to know itself rather than rather than to to make claims or to have I didn't want anyone to walk away from this book thinking okay you know now now I know what North Korea is like yeah well John Leo mentioned in the book that, you know his his sort of amazement that the the refugees that he is working with the defectors that that he's charity deals with retain that sort of reverence for the dear leader, even though they've done everything they possibly can and risk their lives to escape the country. And again, I was reminded in that with with Will, who's who's given up his faith, he's lost his faith, but still has this sort of, not so much a yearning for the faith, but he obviously recognises in others what he once had. 
Yeah, that was um that was a part that just the idea that you well, let's see. That's such an interesting point to bring up. Um what I was learning while I was reading about cults is that you know, a lot of cults will make for instance, they'll make doomsday predictions. They'll say the world is going to end um, on what day is today? Today's the 5th. The world is going to end a year from now on October 5th, um, 2019. And so the cult proceeds accordingly and they prepare for the end of the world. And then the end of the world doesn't come and it doesn't come and it doesn't come. And they keep repredicting and they say, oh, well, you know, like that didn't work out. Um, we're, we were just, it's because of this. But now the end of the world, the end of the world will come six months from now, and then they'll, everyone will prepare accordingly. And what I found to be so fascinating is that in a lot of cults, with a lot of cult members, the fact that their leader is proven wrong doesn't do anything to, um, to hurt their faith. It often increases it. And I think there's something about if you already believe in something, wanting to continue to believe um, and not really seeing an exit from that. And so, yeah, that was, that was something I was very interested in playing with. Um, can we just talk briefly as an aside about religion in, in Korea, in South Korea? You mentioned in the book that Korea sends like an enormous amount of, of missionaries out into the world, like it punches way above its weight in terms of numbers. Tell me something about that. Yeah, um, that, was a, that was a statistic I came across while I was reading about, um, I think I was just reading about Korea. So the the statistic I came across, and I don't know if this is still true, um, but at least then, was that South Korea sends more missionaries abroad than anyone but the U.S. Um, and that's not per capita. It's in absolute numbers. And of course, South Korea is a relatively very small country. And on top of that, Christianity is a minority religion in, in Korea. I forget the exact numbers, but something like only 30% of South Koreans are Christian. And so I was just fascinated by that, by the, by the fervor of that must underlie the numbers. And yeah, that was something I was very interested in playing with because, I mean, I don't know how, how it is in the UK, but at least in the US, the Korean Americans I know, and I've known a lot of Korean Americans, do tend to be Christian and they tend to be very Christian. So the numbers again in the US, it's more something like 80% of, of Korean Americans are, are Christian. Um, and I grew up surrounded by, well, I grew up in a small town that was 80% Asian or so. Um, and a majority of those Asians were, were Korean. Um, I'm Korean. And so many of the people I knew growing up were, were fervently religious. Um, and I think I was, I was in some ways very interested in in wondering about why, wondering about what underlies that, wondering about what the what the appeal is. And while we're on the subject of Korea, there does seem to have been a, a small upsurge in Korean American writers being published recently. Uh, might just be because I'm, I'm interviewing um, Alexander Chi in a few weeks as well. Having this book come out now, this is your this is your debut novel. But do you feel that it's been sort of published into a world where you know Korean American Korean writing is like a familiar thing now? Um, that's a great question. I don't know that it feels all that familiar still i mean let's see i mean i've been so excited by um i know there's crystal hana kim who published a book over the summer um nicole chung who published a book just a couple of weeks ago um or actually i think just a few days ago um and of course there's alex and there's min jin lee and there's um and there's and of course there's jenny han so it, there does seem to be more but I, I still don't it still feels like relatively such a small number compared to um 
compared to compared to how many books there are from say from say white Americans. Um, and yeah, no, I just think it's so I think it's thrilling. I hope there are more and more and more of us. Oh, and there's Samuel Park's book too, which also just came out um, posthumously. Um, and well, let's put it this way: I grew up. I didn't read my first Korean mega writer. Um, Alex Chi was one of them until after college. And, you know, I loved reading when I was growing up. Um, I mean, I love it now, of course, but I, I, I read so much and I never came across Korean American writers. And it was such a revelation for me to read Alex's writing for the first time. It was a revelation to read Chang Rae for the first time to, to just see these glimpses of my own life and my own and my and my demographic self in ways that I hadn't seen ever in literature so yeah I, I'm just I'm so excited about it and I, hope, and, I, and I very much hope that there will be more and more of us going back to the book you, you mentioned the um there's a basically a, a terrorist incident happens in the book there's a, a a bombing and that bombing is of an abortion clinic as we speak I mean by the time this podcast goes out we may well have seen somebody nominated to the Supreme Court in the US. This couldn't be more of a, a timely issue to be writing about, really, could it? Mm, mm, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. I just, I mean, every, I feel as though everyone I know, especially maybe, um, I mean, not maybe, everyone I know, and particularly the woman I know, um, if we're just so angry and we're so sad, it's, it's, it's devastating what's going on. Um, and, if, and, if the, and if the outcome if the outcome is what, if the worst outcome does happen, um, I just, I, I think this, I don't, <laughs> I'm out of words. My, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so outraged. I'm, I'm out of words. Well, the other thing I wanted to talk about that also seems like a, a good time for this book to be coming out, or although I don't really want to talk about what happens in the novel because I don't want to give this away, but Will, he's, his relationship with Phoebe is quite obsessive he he sort of misunderstands and underestimates her a lot and then there is some rather unpleasant behavior shall we say which does again seem like this is a conversation ripped right out of the news pages even though this book has obviously taken 10 years to write yeah um and i don't know i guess people people have been saying things like this book is so timely um what how did why is it, or, you know, people have been asking, like, how did I, with a 10 year book, write a book that, that does seem to have so many of its um, central concerns taken from, or not taken from, but maybe reflecting the headlines. Um, and I guess to that, all I can say is that I think a lot of the concerns that are, that are just sort of, that are in the headlines and horrifying us now were just as present 10 years ago you know um and we're just as present ten, five years ago we're just present three years ago we're just we're just as much part of the part of the world that we're in we've talked about some korean american writers earlier on but i wanted to talk about what other writers were an influence in this book in particular yeah of course um let's see i was rereading a lot of virginia wolf um while i was working on this book i love her so much um i love her fiction i love her I love, love her journals. Um, I love, I love pretty much everything she's ever written that I've read. Uh, I was also reading, I love Clarissa Spector. She's fantastic. She really, I think part of what I love about her is that she writes as though there are no rules at all. And it helps me reconsider how I'm writing and it helps me push a little more toward, toward well, 
I think she has a wildness that I really love. Um, and she's sort of pushing at the edges of what's been done and what's, and what's possible. And I find that to be exciting and inspiring. And what's next for you? Uh, so I've been working on um, a second novel for about two years. It still feels really, still feels really early and raw, despite it having been, t- been two years. Um, so I have trouble talking about it, but I will say that it's about two women. Um, it's centered on two women, two women artists. And has a lot to do with desire and ambition. I'm also co-editing an anthology with Garth Greenwell. Um, it's called Kink, and it's coming out from Simon & Schuster in 2020. And to finish off with, if 